welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Rick Boddy. And we're back talking about troponin, possibly Rick's favourite topic in the world, but one of great importance to us in the emergency department and of huge relevance, because we're going to focus today on the NICE guideline that's recently released here in the UK, and of which Rick was a big part in the formulation. So Rick, if you don't mind, can we just go through a little bit about what's in the guideline, where it comes from, and how we're going to be able to use this clinically in the future with our patients with low-risk chest pain? This is groundbreaking stuff, really. I mean, I feel that we've hammered the high-sensitivity troponins pretty well over the last few months, but it's really worthwhile doing this extra podcast because the NICE recommendations are a bit of a game-changer. For the first time in the UK, they give us the go-ahead to rule out an NSTEMI using a high-sensitivity troponin assay within three hours of a patient arriving in the emergency department. That's the bottom line. But what we thought we'd do in this podcast is go through that guideline, talk about the process, how it came about, talk about some of the really important caveats, because it's not quite that simple. You can't simply rule everyone out after three hours. So Rick, tell us what's actually in the guideline. How can we go about using this? Well, this is a guideline to do with high sensitivity troponin for the rule out of NSTEMI. Really important that we focus on that scope and understand that that's the limit of the scope really. Um, This isn't about a cardiac chest pain guideline. This isn't about how you might combine troponin with clinical features. It isn't about the best clinical prediction model combining clinical features with biochemistry uh, for ruling out an acute coronary syndrome. It's simply about whether you can use high sensitivity troponin by itself to rule out, not rule in, just rule out a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction in the emergency department. Because it's a UK guideline, we thought that a rapid rule out would be within four hours of arrival because we've got the four hour target in the UK. Patients have to have had a decision made and have gone somewhere within four hours of arrival. So that's what we want to achieve with high sensitivity troponin. If the patients can't be ruled out within four hours, then there's no rapid rule out strategy. That was our scope. So we've got this idea, but it sounds very limited. This isn't a chest pain guideline at all, is it? This is very much a singular aim that this gone because I have to admit I thought this was going to tell us how to sort out all of our chest pains in the ED but clearly that's not the case. Yeah unfortunately not this isn't the nice cardiac chest pain guideline or chest pain of recent onset guideline that's separate and it will be revised separately this is a piece of work by the diagnostics advisory committee which is specifically set up by nice to evaluate the cost effectiveness of diagnostic technology for use in the NHS. And when they're looking at diagnostic technology, they really limit it to the test that they're looking at. This is specifically about high sensitivity troponin by itself, no clinical information. That's for the chest pain of recent onset guideline, which isn't due for revision for another couple of years, I think. So they're looking at the machinery, really, and how the test works and how the test characteristics work. What was their conclusion? Which of the assays that we use are included in this guideline and what does the NICE panel say about how we can then use that in the ED? Really important point for everybody listening, there are only two assays that you can use this 3R rule out strategy with and they are the Roche high sensitivity troponin T assay is pretty much the only lab based troponin T assay around. The cutoff is 1414 nanograms per litre so I guess you'll know if you're using that assay because of that cutoff. The other assay that you can use is the Abbott troponin I assay. Now there are loads of troponin I assays out there, so you really need to ask your lab which one you're using. But if your cutoff is set at 26 nanograms per litre, 
2.6 nanograms per litre, then the chances are that this is the Abbott assay you're using at its high sensitivity and you could use the three-hour rule-out strategy. So where does that leave people who are not using those assays? Does it just mean they can't use this guideline at all? Is it completely pointless for them? Do they have to change all of the equipment they're using? Are they a bit stuffed or can they just keep doing what they're doing? Well, I think it's a case of keep doing what you're doing. It doesn't say don't use those assays that aren't included in these, in these recommendations. When the labs buy the assays, they actually have a really big contract with the manufacturers, not just for the troponin test, but for everything, because they buy in these massive automated analyzers, huge pieces of kit worth millions of pounds that deliver all of the tests, all of the chemistry tests that your lab will run. Troponin is just one of them. Of course, because of that, the characteristics of the troponin assay is just one consideration when you're deciding which company to go with for your contract. That means your, your lab is unlikely to change the equipment that they use just so that they can use a high sensitivity troponin assay. And some people will use standard troponin assays that aren't high sensitivity. They don't need to change, you can still use those. It's just that this nice recommendation doesn't apply to the use of those assays. And can people use those assays at the zero and three hours in the same way for a rapid rule out? Or is it just that we're waiting for further evidence and it hasn't got that nice stamp of approval? And I guess a nice stamp of approval is indeed nice. I think that's exactly right. It doesn't have the nice stamp of approval. We can't recommend the rule out within three hours for those assays, but that's not what NICE looked at. It's not that NICE looked at the evidence and found that it wasn't good enough. NICE just didn't look for the evidence of a three-hour rule out with a standard troponin assay. So people can breathe a bit easier. They don't have to necessarily throw out millions of pounds worth of kit and suddenly change it. They can still use the other assays they've been using, and they may even be able to use those in a rapid rule out strategy. That's not what this guideline was talking about. It sounds right like this guideline itself actually is just looking at one piece of equipment and how it works. So it doesn't include any of those rule out rules that we've been seeing or the decision rules, perhaps you could call them. The things, for example, that you've been involved with, with Max rule and things like that. That's not in this at all. Yeah, exactly right. So NICE didn't look at how we might use troponin in conjunction with clinical features. It didn't look at how we might use troponin as part of a risk score. They didn't evaluate the evidence for things like the ADAPT protocol, the zero and two hour troponin rule-out strategy in patients who have a low TIMI risk score. It didn't look at the MAX rule, my own piece of work. It didn't look at the HEART score. It just looked at high sensitivity troponin tests by themselves. So Rick, you were inside all of this process and sometimes these things seem a bit... Well, a bit distant, I guess, from clinicians on the shop floor. So to have the opportunity to ask somebody who actually was there, you couldn't just tell us a bit how this works, is it? I mean, is this emails pinging backwards and forwards from intellectuals discussing the pros and cons? Or is this a sit-down meeting with a three-course meal with port, wine and cheese or somewhere in between? It was a really interesting experience for me because it's my first experience with NICE. And uh, it, was, it was really enlightening to see what their processes are. So... First of all, the proposal for this recommendation or this guidance is put forward by an individual or an an organisation. NICE then looks at that and decides whether to take it forward. They identified two expert advisors. I have no idea how, but somehow the Google search must have come up with my name and I was one of the two expert advisors they initially consulted. And through two teleconferences, we discussed the topic in general. From there, NICE decided that they would like to take it on and have the Diagnostics Advisory Committee look at it in a bit more detail. They published this on the internet and then called for stakeholders and people who thought they might be able to act as a specialist advisor to come forward and apply. I applied 
and they accepted me as a specialist advisor to the panel. We had a series of meetings. It starts off with a scoping meeting where we go into the fine detail of what this recommendation is going to be about and what's not going to be included. And then we have a series of meetings through about 18 months where all of the different things are discussed. At each meeting you have standing members of the Diagnostics Advisory Committee, so they're people who go to the meetings for the appraisal of all different diagnostic technology. And you have specialist members, and there were five or six of us. You also have these technical advisors who are employed by NICE, and they are absolutely fantastic. I have no idea how they get up to speed with a topic in such depth so quickly as they do. They're not medical, they're just technical advisors to NICE. Also, you have a group that's been commissioned to do a systematic review and some economic modelling for NICE, and they're represented. Lastly, at each meeting, you have representatives from each of the stakeholders. So for something like troponin, it was representatives from the manufacturers. And uh, the really interesting thing is, you know, NICE is so careful to avoid conflicts of interest. Um, so the, the panel will sit round in a large rectangular formation in, in a huge room. The stakeholders, the manufacturers, will sit sort of towards the back of the room. They're not part of the main circle. And I think that's because while NICE wants good representation from the manufacturers and the stakeholders, they do want to make sure that there's no potential conflict of interest by working too closely with them, I guess. And so there's no nice little backhanders for you? The, the, let's say Mr Abbott and Mr Roche, they're, they're not uh, offering you holidays in the Seychelles or anything? Does, does any money pass hand at all? Do, do you just get expenses for the meetings or are these paid positions that people are taking? No, I've got absolutely nothing. Paid my own expenses. There's no money changing hands. Very, very basic lunch that's provided. Uh, and this is all, I think, deliberate. You know, they have to be seen to be a little bit careful with these issues because um, public perception is so important. Definitely, it's not a paid position. I presume it's, it's good for you, it's good for the trust that you work for to see that you've got people on the NICE panel. And I guess if you've spent as long as you have at the centre of all of this, you want to be part of the decision making. How did you feel when this process was finished and it all ended up and the guideline was produced? Did you think that it was a good piece of work? I think it's a really a, it's a huge piece of work and the, the the amount of it's so difficult to come to a consensus about these issues you're never going to get everybody's 100% agreement that's absolutely impossible so to actually come to a conclusion so efficiently and so quickly was pretty impressive to be honest and that I was really impressed by the chair that um, he managed to bring us to that without everybody fighting each other because we're never all going to have the same opinions and um, you know you've got it you've got to manage that and that's what he did in, in another life Rick you will make a perfect politician because you avoided the question absolutely fabulously there and I obviously don't want to put you in a difficult situation but we do have all these nice guidelines that are being produced over and over and we'll get quoted as we teach our junior doctors as the gospel truth about clinical medicine we've seen others come out in the recent past to do with um, heart failure and there's everything has been covered by a nice guideline i think everything from piles through to head lice do you really think that this process has come up with something that is useful to emergency physicians it's always a very proud moment to be involved with uh, a national body like nice that's making recommendations for the nhs it was a real honor to take part in that process and a real education as well um, and I do think that the bottom line is very clinically relevant. Uh, we can now safely rule out an uh, acute myocardial infarction and end STEMI 
three hours later and they've been quite resounding and and coming to that conclusion which is helpful for clinicians because what we want is clear guidance so we've got that bottom line really which is that you can rule out an endstemic at three hours but you did list a whole load of things at the beginning that this doesn't do where does unstable angina fall within all this troponin measuring everything i seem to read tells me that unstable angina is a troponin negative or troponin normal state could you just tell us a little bit about that because that's definitely confusing me you know what that is the most important point about these nice recommendations I think the worst thing that could happen is that people see them and think that, well, everybody with suspected cardiac chest pain has a high sensitivity to troponin test on arrival and three hours later, and if they're both normal, they go home. Fantastic. Job done. The problem is that, as you say, unstable angina is a troponin normal state. If we sent them home, those patients with unstable angina wouldn't be treated and would be potentially at quite substantial risk of developing an event in the near future. We've never really tested that because we treat patients with unstable angina right now. If we stopped, we might be in big trouble. And I think it's really important to recognise that we still need to take account of all of the clinical information, the ECG, the history, the patient's background, examination findings, and then decide whether the patient still needs to come into hospital. If the three-hour troponin is normal, you've ruled out an endstemi according to these guidelines, but you haven't ruled out unstable angina, so you still need to decide whether your patient needs to be admitted, even if the troponin is normal. You can just spend a minute or two just explaining why unstable angina is different to an endstemi, could you? Because we spent a long time in our previous podcast talking about myocardial injury, myocardial ischemia, how they're all going to release troponin. What is it about unstable angina that means the troponin stays in those cells? Unstable angina is exactly the same disease as endstemi and stemi, effectively. It's caused by coronary disease, it's caused by unstable plaque, it's caused by plaque rupture, plaque erosion. The difference between unstable angina and an enstemi is that with an enstemi, there's been enough disruption of the coronary blood flow to cause myocardial injury. That's the end stage in the pathophysiological process. Something's happened, something's been permanently damaged. With unstable angina, that hasn't quite happened, but there still could be a ruptured plaque sat there and that might still need some treatment. So in that case, the patient can have pain, but that may not represent enough myocardial injury to release troponin. Well, effectively, we're saying unstable angina is a a state where there is no myocardial injury that we can detect whatsoever. And with high-sensitivity troponins, we can detect really small amounts of myocardial injury. But you still can have unstable coronary disease and no myocardial injury. It's perfectly possible that your plaque is ruptured, you've got a little bit of thrombus, but... It's not occluded the flow. You've not embolized and uh, occluded a distal artery. Uh, so there's no myocardial injury. Problem is that pretty soon afterwards, unless those patients are treated, they might develop an enstemi or a STEMI or even a sudden cardiac death. We've never really tested what will happen without treating the patients. So we've really got down to a couple of points here with this NICE guideline. Everyone loves NICE guidelines, I think, because it gives us something that we can hang our hat on. It gives us something that we can say, we've done that and I guess in a way it's what the US might call the standard of care. So if you can say you did what it said in the NICE guideline, you've done your bit, you've done as much as you can, you've done what the experts have told you and that in our UK is the equivalent I suppose of that standard of care. But we've got to be careful and read this carefully. This was just a guideline from what you're saying that looked at the piece of machinery and how it works. 
It didn't look at the clinical picture particularly. We know that we're safe to rule out an NSTEMI at three hours using these tests, but it's only checked up on two tests, the Roche and the Abbott test. Lots of people will be using different tests. Now, they could safely still be doing rapid rule outs with those tests, but we just haven't evaluated them. And then you've got this other picture muddying the waters about unstable angina. So we still need caution. This isn't a ticket to say a zero and three hour troponin rules out any form of problematic cardiac disease and your patient can go home. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Now, there's one more caveat I think we should we should touch on before we go. And that's the practicality of doing a three hour troponin. Do you use three hour troponins in your practice, Ian? Yeah, very much so. We introduced this with gusto. And how, how's it going? I have to say there was a huge amount of anticipation, not just from clinicians, but from the trust management. Because of what you mentioned about targets before, this became a process issue. This wasn't just about quality of care. This was, we can get these patients through quicker. And so the three hours number is magic because that is less than four hours. Let me just run that past you again there, Rick, in case you didn't get it. Three hours, you're with me, is less than four hours. And we are time obsessed in our emergency departments. Now, obviously, it takes time to run these tests. As we talked about in previous podcasts, That it's not a point-of-care test. It has to go off to the lab. So even if you're massively efficient and you get the blood sample to the lab, it still takes some time to process, and then you're still up against the clock. So in my practice, we've been using them. There is now a feeling, I think, that you can use them on more people. You're not necessarily making as good a clinical judgment because let's just be safe and it won't take so long. But also, it's not really helping with that time process as much because you still need to end up admitting to a short-stay ward anyway. But I can see this just taking off in EDs around the country and becoming really endemic in anyone who presents with any form of chest pain. They're going to get this test done, and I'm not sure that's the right thing. I totally agree, and I think the big challenge is that in the UK, we've got to make these decisions in good time so that the patient can have left the department to be admitted or discharged within four hours of arrival. If we're doing a three-hour test, we don't do it right the second the patient arrives. It might be half an hour later, right? I guess, practically. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then your second test will be three and a half hours after the patient arrives because they've got to be three hours apart, the two tests. Then you're asking the lab to give you a turnaround time of less than half an hour to get your result. And you're expecting your clinicians to speak to the patients, talk about the diagnosis, Tell them they can go home or tell them they can be admitted and let the trust find a bed for you in that short time period. I just think it's not likely to happen 100% of the time and probably quite far from it. So a lot of these patients will be admitted, even if only just for a, for a short period. But it's not likely to stop us admitting everyone from the emergency department by any means. When you think about it, actually, with the common sense, these patients are still going to go to our short stay area and we're going to end up seeing a lot more short stay, short stay patients. So instead of waiting for the 10 hour test, they're going to be waiting two or three hours. And so there's going to be discussions at that commissioning level and that regional level to say, well, what does that mean? What's that worth? To me, the most important thing is, is that we do safe medicine. We're always anxious in emergency medicine about missing that worst case diagnosis, aren't we? And I think sensitive tests, and we always strive, we always want sensitive tests. This is one that's going to help us but it is to be used with caution. I don't think every patient with chest pain needs it. We've done audits. A colleague of mine, Sanjay Ramamurthy, presented this at USIM just recently. We're doing troponins on people with epigastric pain in the same way we do ECGs on people who sprain their ankles. And 
Throughout the whole of us and Emlyn series, we're always trying to emphasize that tests are great, but they have to be in a clinical context. And I think this guidelines just helped us realize what that clinical context is. Well put, Ian. Nice one. <laughs> Thanks very much. So, Rick, we've pretty much tried to sum up the NICE guideline. You very kindly and very politically, if you don't mind me saying, talked us through a little bit of that process. Uh, I've realized that if I ever become involved with a NICE guideline, I'm going to take a packed lunch. And that's an important take-home message. Just tell us again those take-home points that you'd like people to remember from this NICE guideline. Clearly, we're going to have these on a blog post and we'll link to both the evidence that's been used in the guideline and also the guideline itself. But Rick, just sum everything up for us, if you wouldn't mind. So there's one take-home message from the NICE guideline, and that is that if you use a high-sensitivity troponin assay, then you can rule out NSTEMI with a test on arrival and at three hours. If both the results are below the 99th percentile or the cutoff, then NSTEMI has been ruled out. That's the NICE recommendation. But there are three caveats to that. Number one, it only applies if you're using a high sensitivity assay and only two assays qualified for that definition uh, when NICE appraised the evidence. And that's the Rush troponin T assay and the Abbott Architect high sensitivity troponin I assay. The second caveat is that you can't rule out unstable angina using this protocol. You can only rule out NSTEMI. So keep your thinking cap on and remember, if you suspect unstable angina, you may well still need to admit the patients. Number three, the third caveat, is that even the three-hour rule-out will mean that many of your patients need to be admitted to hospital if you work in the UK and you have the four-hour target. Rick, thanks again. We're so privileged to have you as part of the St. Emlyn's team. And if you're listening to this podcast, please remember that we've done another couple of podcasts on high sensitivity troponin back in the beginnings of the series, which really take you through everything so that you can become expert in the use of troponin. In the Scott Weingart philosophy of how we judge ourselves and where we're up to, Rick is indeed a master. He's achieving mastery in troponin. And I know that he'd be delighted to hear from listeners and readers of the blog. If you want to ask him more questions about that, and also, not only does Rick know a huge amount himself, but also he's part of this worldwide group that I think are working together to get more and more evidence for us to be able to use these tests effectively in the ED. So we'd be delighted to hear from you. Please let us know what you'd like us to talk about on the podcast in the future. Enjoy your emergency medicine and please don't forget to take care of everyone.